Hello and welcome to Wineskins, a program that features the lives of the saints and reflections on the Sunday readings, along with information on a variety of topics and issues from a Catholic perspective. I'm Father Jim Corda. Our program is brought to you through the annual Diocesan Appeal, the Catholic Communication Campaign, and St. Paul's Catholic Books and Gifts, a division of the Society of St. Paul. Our interview segment today will feature Monsignor John Zura on the 80th anniversary of the Diocese of Youngstown. We will also get a glimpse into the life and times of St. Maximilian Kolbe, along with reflections on the readings for this 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time. That and more on Wineskins. In our Life Issue segment, Father Jack Lavelle will talk about adoption. The Bible provides the first view of adoption as a covenant rather than a contract. Ancient Hebrews believed that contracts govern the exchange of property. The formation of personal relationships, however, was by a covenant, a sacred promise that is not only the foundation of kinship, of family, but also the basis of God's relationship with His children. They believed that a family bound by covenant was stronger than one bound only by biology. The Old Testament demonstrates the Hebrew belief in the covenant of adoption. It stands in loving contrast to the utilitarian, contractual paradigm found in cultures that did not believe in God. The story of Moses is a classic account of the adoption covenant from the Old Testament. When his mother fears that her son Moses will be killed by Pharaoh's command, she places him in a reed basket in the Nile River. He is found by Pharaoh's daughter, who understands the baby's fate. She rescues him, and he became her son. God's plan for Moses was secured by the faith and sacrifice of these two women his birth mother, and his new mother, Pharaoh's daughter. Their adoption covenant was a promise which ensured that Moses would be spared and would be nurtured. The themes of faith, covenant, and sacrifice in adoption found in the Old Testament are precursors of our Christian understanding of family and adoption. The first model of a Christian family is one that is bound more by covenant than biology. With faith and sacrifice, Mary and Joseph overcame their fears and made a covenant with God and each other to raise Jesus. This is an important reminder to all Christians that we are, first and foremost, children of God. God entrusts parents with this duty to care for His children, just as Mary and Joseph cared for His Son. Catholic families today make the same covenant that God asked of Mary and Joseph. In the sacrament of marriage, the couple makes solemn promises to give themselves to each other and to accept each other and, with love, to welcome children into their family. The Church's teachings on marriage and family also apply in adoption. When a child is abandoned, orphaned, or born to parents who decide that they are unable to make and fulfill this covenant with God, they seek the care of their child with an adoptive family. The responsibility, then, of the adoptive parents is to work for the good of the child, not simply in the physical or economical dimensions, but also in the spiritual one. The creation of a Christian family is not a function of biology. It is grounded in the belief that God creates each of us in His image and likeness, to be fully human and to share in God's life. Here's what St. Pope John Paul II said about adoption in 2000, when he addressed families who had adopted children. To adopt a child is a great work of love. When it is done, much is given, but much is also received. It is a true exchange of gifts. Adopting children 
regarding and treating them as one's own children, means recognizing that the relationship between parents and children is not measured only by genetic standards. Procreative love is first and foremost a gift of self. There is a form of procreation which occurs through acceptance, concern, and devotion. The resulting relationship is so intimate and enduring that it is in no way inferior to one based on biological connection. When this is juridically protected, as it is in adoption, in a family united by the stable bond of marriage, it assures the child is given a peaceful atmosphere, and the paternal and maternal love which this child needs is the full human development. Jesus Christ himself was conceived through the Holy Spirit without a human father. To fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament, he was adopted into the tribe of David by his foster father Joseph, and raised by Joseph, who adopted Jesus as his son. We continue, indeed, with the help of professionals in the adoption business, to merge with the concept of adoption as a covenant. The result of a good model of Catholic adoption is one that always has us living the spiritual dimension of our lives together. The state provides for safety nets of legal protection for the child and families, but it is the church that helps make families the most important promise, the covenant with God, that this child will be treated as a person made in his image and likeness, and that all together, parents and children, will seek to live that same love demonstrated by Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops website has a wonderful novena to St. Joseph, praying each day for the process of adoption and all involved. The final day invites this prayer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are one God, living in a relationship of love. When Christ became man, you shared that divine love with the human race, forever wedding earth to heaven. Send your blessings upon all who are nurtured, children who have been adopted. Give them generous and understanding hearts. Give us all a spirit of understanding and welcome, so that all peoples of every nation, race, and tongue may live together peacefully as members of your family. And grant this through Christ our Lord. Amen. For Wineskins, I'm Father Jack Lavelle. St. Maximilian Kolbe was a martyr and the patron of those suffering from drug abuse. To tell us more is Katie Wagner. She is the editor-in-chief of the Catholic Echo. This Franciscan priest saw religious indifference as the deadliest poison of the day. He founded the Militia of the Immaculata, whose aim was to fight evil with the witness of the good life, prayer, work, and suffering. In 1941, he was arrested by the Nazis. The end came quickly. In Auschwitz, after terrible beatings and humiliations with an injection of carbolic acid, he was canonized as a martyr by St. Pope John Paul II in 1982. Born in a little town in Poland and given the name Raymond at his baptism, he entered the Franciscans in 1907 and received the name Maximilian. He was ordained a priest in 1919. Because of his great devotion to the Blessed Virgin, he added the name Mary to Maximilian when he made solemn profession in 1914. He was convinced that the church was entering upon a Marian era and he founded the order whose members were called Knights of the Immaculate. He died a martyr on the eve of the Feast of the Assumption at the age of 47. 
The opening prayer begins with the statement, God, you have given to the church in the world, Saint Maximilian, ardent in his love for the Immaculate Virgin and totally dedicated to his apostolic mission into the heroic service of his neighbor. In the letter by Saint Maximilian in the Office of Readings, we learn that for this apostolic Franciscan, the proof of our perfect charity is obedience, and it should be practiced, especially when we are asked to sacrifice our own will. His spirit of love and service remind us today that whatever our state of life, we can, through the intercession of Mary Immaculate, combine an intense, active life with a deep, interior life of prayer. In closing, let us pray. Saint Maximilian Mary Kolbe, look with compassion upon those who are entrapped in addiction to drugs or alcohol, in whom we now recommend to your powerful intercession. We turn to you in trust, confident that you will understand and help. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. For Wineskins, I am Katie Wagner. Join me now is Monsignor John Zura, who is the Vicar General for the Diocese of Youngstown. Welcome to Wineskins. Thank you very much, Father Corda. A few months ago in June, the bishop had an anniversary mass marking the 80th anniversary of the Diocese of Youngstown. You and I were too young to remember the uh, 25th anniversary. I would have been in high school, you would have been in grade school. Of course, we remember the 50th anniversary in 1993, and we worked together for the 75th in 2018. This year, marking the 80th, but also looking forward to the 100th anniversary, what should we be mindful of as a diocese? Anniversaries give us an opportunity to reflect back on our rich heritage, but it also gives us an opportunity to look forward to the future a future that's going to be different than it was when we celebrated our 50th, even our 75th. When we look at our 80th, you know, we have to simply say, yes, with gratitude and pride, we give thanks to God, but we can't just simply rest on the heritage. We have to move forward as to what our population base is going to be, you know, the number of ministers, how is the church going to be different than what it is today? You know, it's interesting as you were talking, one thing comes to mind is that there are some things in the church that never changes, but there are things that evolve, that have to change because of other influences. What are some of those things that have kind of crept in that make us have to change? First and foremost, I think the number of clergy that we have, the diminishing number and as we look at the seminary and base, it will never be able to catch up with those that maybe have retired or who have gone to their heavenly reward. But looking at that, we also have to realize that the individual lay ministries, the lay formation that this diocese does in fact offer gives us an opportunity to move forward with a sense of strength. I don't see this as a weakness. The church never had enough clergy. And to say, you know, all of this is a result of the clergy crisis of numbers is to stifle the Holy Spirit. In all honesty, I think the Spirit is leading the church to be, yes, clergy-centered, religious-centered, but also to offer opportunities for the laity to take 
an active role of their baptismal call. You know, as you look back at the beginnings, uh, long before we celebrated our 25th and even before we became a diocese in 1943, that whole sense of clergy was very small. You're talking about a handful of priests that took care of the state of Ohio, the state of Michigan, the state of Wisconsin. So those numbers obviously have changed throughout the years. But the involvement of lay people, I'd like to focus on that a little bit because that's really been one of the strengths of any local church. Why is it important for us to foster lay vocation? Bishop Malone fostered the concept of the laity. Being a participant of the Second Vatican Council, he truly recognized that if the church is going to move forward, individuals have to take ownership. It's too easy basically just to put the blame, you know, on the clergy or the religious. This gives us an opportunity to in fact take stock of what the church is all about and who the church is all about. You know, there are gifts and talents that individuals bring to the church. And yes, we need sacramental ministers but we also need individuals that are committed to the church in various ways of administration or the lay formation aspect of our church. I'd like to get a little more personal now for us as priests. How has the diocese changed in your many years looking back to your ordination day to today? I know how it has changed in mine. I'm just a few years older than you are. So how has that affected you personally as a priest? Over these last 35 years, you know, things have changed. And the good examples that I think you and I had as individuals that mentored us to who we are today, I think it is through those good examples way back when, like 1987 when I was ordained, they had the foresight of, you know, including the laity, either, you know, through parish councils or finance councils, to see the importance of directors of religious education. All these aspects, I think, enriched our ministry as to how we now lead various parishes or various institutions. And I think that's why we reflect on our rich heritage. But we simply say, from that heritage, how are we moving forward in a positive way? I don't see any of this as being negative, but I see it as enriching the church and listening to the Holy Spirit as to how we need to move forward. What do you anticipate us doing these next few years and maybe these next few months as we move onwards and look forward to that big anniversary of 100 years? The whole concept of collaboration needs to be first and foremost in our minds and in our actions. Without collaboration, what's going to happen is that we're going to become isolated and lone rangers. But if we're truly going to be the people of God, we've got to collaborate even more with one another. And how can we do that, first of all, as priests? First and foremost, I think we cannot no longer see our parishes as our little kingdoms. We have to look at how we can develop with the neighboring parishes a sense of ownership, but also a sense of vision 
for the future. We know we have fewer religious serving in our diocese, and yet the presence of religious is still important. How can we foster that? I think by actively engaging our religious. You know, when we started way back when, most of our religious were educators within our school systems. Now that has changed. They're in areas of social work. They're in areas of parish diocesan administrators. So I think we're lifting up their gifts and their talents to this present age. Our religious are meeting the needs of the time. And this is what we have to do. We have to look at our time and the needs of our time, and we have to adjust and simply say, what we have done 80 years ago, we can no longer, nor should we, operate out of that same mentality. And in a nutshell, what do we want to tell the lay folks that are with us about the future of the diocese, but also as we move towards 100 years? That we're not going anywhere, but with the laity, we're even going to be stronger as a church. Monsignor John Zura, thank you so much for being with us today and for kind of laying the groundwork as we celebrate these next several months and commemorate our 80 years as a diocese, but also as we look forward to that big mark of 100 years. Thank you very much. For Wineskins, I'm Father Jim Corda. Visit the website www.catholicecho.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 33 million Americans have descended into poverty. And as their futures fall, so does our nations. Our song today is from the CD entitled Simple Heart. It is by John Michael Talbot. God has spoken only one thing. Only two do I know That power belongs to the Lord And to you, Lord, love And you render to In the balance 
Our scripture reflections for this 23rd Sunday in Ordinary Time will be done by Ursuline Sister Regina Rogers. She is from St. Edward Church in Youngstown. In the first part of today's Gospel, Jesus talks to his disciples and to us. If we become aware of another's sinful actions, we are to speak with that person. Notice, the first step is to speak to the individual involved. This is very difficult to do. It is much easier to talk about a person than to talk with that person. We have all been part of conversations that criticize or find fault with another. Think of the last time when someone said, did you tell them that? Most of the time, the answer is no. Again, the reality is we do not like confrontation or any topic that will cause conflict. However, as followers of Christ, his direction to us is that when someone has sinned against us or hurt us, the first step is to talk with that person. Easy? No. But the alternative is to brood over what has happened, to focus on the negative, to harbor feelings of resentment and anger. When we have been hurt, it hardens us. The hurt becomes the focus of that relationship. Sometimes we waste valuable time thinking about how we can get even or hurt that person. The pain and anger which fills us can become a growing cancer in our lives. We don't know how we can forgive or we don't want to forgive. Yet the way of a Christian is to confront the person in a loving way. I think that the next part in this story, 
to bring two or three witnesses in is a way of saying, make sure that this is not just your agenda, but that you are speaking the truth. However, the choice of accepting criticism rests with the other. We cannot change people as much as we'd like to. The decision to change is theirs alone. All we can do is present our thoughts or feelings, then let it go. If the matter is grave and the person will not change, the behavior can never be condoned. If a person persists, then they have made the choice to put themselves outside the circle of the church. But we can never be unkind. When we go to the person who hurt us and express our feelings to that person, good can come out of the conversation. Maybe the person was not even aware of how we felt. Maybe the person didn't mean what we heard. Or maybe the person was holding a grudge against us. Now, in a spirit of charity, we can talk about whatever was hurting each of us. The conversation is between the two of us and is done not to point fingers, to make us feel superior. The goal of this conversation is the healing of a relationship. But again, we cannot control another's feelings or attitude or response. There can come a point when nothing is accomplished. Jesus calls us to correct those who do wrong not just toward us, but those who do wrong. But correction is not criticism or judgment. It is calling a person to be their best self. In reading this gospel, the beginning and ending seem like two different issues, but they are not. The beginning spells out the process for reconciling with someone who has offended us. The ending is Jesus' promise that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. The beginning is about forgiveness. The ending is about Jesus' presence. When we are able to forgive, Jesus is present. When another accepts our loving concern for them, Jesus is present. If we want to live in the presence of Christ, we must learn to forgive. For Wineskins, I am Sister Regina Rogers. How do we get along with people? We work at it. We communicate with them openly and honestly. If that doesn't work, we leave the door open. We treat them with indestructible goodwill, just as Jesus did the Gentiles and the tax collectors. Wineskins is made possible by the annual Diocesan Appeal, the Catholic Communication Campaign, and St. Paul's Catholic Books and Gifts. Wineskins are produced by the Roman Catholic Diocese of Youngstown. I'm Father Jim Corda, thanking you for being with us. Have a blessed Sunday, and may God be with you. What have you done for your marriage today? I gave my wife a hug this morning. I thought I love her. I uh, did her hair this morning. I think it looks pretty good. <laughs> I cooked my husband's uh, favorite breakfast. I bought her an orchid. What have I done for my marriage today? I sent my husband a love email. I read the newspaper to my wife, and it cracked her up. She's, but she's still laughing. <laughs> what have you done for your marriage today? Make a change for the better. Need help? 
Go to foryourmarriage.org. A message from the Catholic Church. They say America is the land of opportunity, but for some, life isn't so easy. Right now in America, one in six children lives below the poverty line. That's nearly 13 million children of all races all across our country. Where do you draw the line and get involved? You can make a difference in more ways than you think. Go to povertyusa.org today because one in six children in poverty is one too many. A message from the Catholic Campaign for Human Development.